So Money, episode 152, Eric Lowett. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to So Money. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. So did you ever wish that you could predict the future? Um, Yeah, I have. I mean, it would be kind of a pretty awesome superpower. Well, today's guest is a futurist. Did you even know that was a profession? Um, He's not a fortune teller. Uh, He's actually a professional futurist and is very much on the cutting edge of thought leadership surrounding sustainability. And his name is Eric Lowett. He's doing incredible work as a self-described volatility advocate and expert. He, uh, like I said, he's a futurist. He's a thought leader and the CEO of Nexus Global Advisors. It's an advisory firm that works with CEOs, senior public officials, and leading executives on strategy, collaboration, sustainability, volatility, and business models of tomorrow. And if you're running a business today, what are the forces at play that you may not even see that would likely impact your work and your goals? Eric is the author of two groundbreaking books. His next book is called The V Quotient, How to Thrive in Our Fractured World. It's highly anticipated. It's coming out mid-2016. And prior to being with Nexus Global Advisors, Eric was a consultant and advised companies for 20 years with Accenture, Fidelity Investments, Deloitte Consulting. He got his MBA from Wharton, and he's been named one of the top 100 thought leaders in trustworthy business for four straight years. He's kind of smart, kind of, you know, so I had to put on my special thinking cap during this interview. I hope I succeeded. Several takeaways from our time with Eric, what it means to be a volatility expert. I mean, talk to me like I'm three, Eric, okay? Because I'm kind of new to this territory, and I think some of my listeners might be too. We're not dumb, but we're just... (laughs) We're just kind of unfamiliar with this kind of work. So we know what volatility is, obviously, but how do you be a volatility expert? Learning about money as a kid, Eric has some very interesting stories about how his father built a kind of money tree in the backyard. It was funny, but also chock full of lessons. And um, Eric's met a lot of prestigious people in his life. Um, Namely, he had um, an opportunity to meet President Bill Clinton. And in telling that story, he talks about uh, the big splurge that he made uh, before meeting and shaking his hand and um, why it was worth it. So this is a, a really great interview. I can't wait to unleash it. Here we go. Here is Eric Lowett. Eric Lowett, welcome to So Money. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, I I really want to pick your brain because um, I feel as though you are really on the cutting edge. You're doing amazing work um, in, in an area that I think for, for me, I'll be the first to admit, and I think probably for a lot of my listeners, we, there's not a lot of... Um, I would say education and knowledge around, you know, or maybe we, 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 we need to hear it from you as far as, you know, what, um, what it is that you do. You are a volatility advocate. What does that mean? So volatility advocate just means this. Um, when we go through our, our days, 
we run into so many uh, situations that challenge us, that challenge our understanding of, of life and, and world. It could be simple as you're commuting and the car in front of you cuts you off without using your blinker. And that's sort of change. It's changed to your mood and it's changed to your outlook for the day. And we typically, uh, when we're faced with change, we typically look at change as a bad thing, right? We look to maybe try to survive it. We hear in business, people use the word resiliency as a way to survive change or, or uh, what I call tread the waters of change. I'm actually somebody who sees change as a really good thing. Change in and of itself may be a bit of a tired word, but the idea of being able to position yourself, whether you're a career-minded individual or an executive of an organization, to actually benefit from great change in a great, in a great way is something that I think is going to differentiate people uh, tomorrow from people today. And why did you decide to make this your all-encompassing kind of career uh, task, your career vision, your, your agenda? Why, why volatility? To answer that, I've got to give a little bit of context. Um, so I'm, I come from a long line of doctors and psychologists. So I could be eating dinner when I was a kid with my left hand instead of my right and have both my parents simultaneously ask me, hey, what's wrong? Did you have a bad day? Hmm. Um, so I thought, gosh, all right, you know, there's something more to the world than just, uh, just what I see. There, there's more to the world here. Uh, so over the course of high school and college, I challenged myself to get out of my comfort zone by going to Japan. And living in Japan all through college, got a degree from a, a Japanese university, took all of my courses in Japanese, with Japanese students, economics, lit, uh, you name it, I did it. Um, and so by the time I, I went into the business world after graduating from college, I had this sort of dual life. I had this American life and I had this Japanese life and I had dual perspectives and then I had the psychologist's insight of, um, you know, I, can, I could see situations in non-conventional ways. And that over time is translated first into a foray of about six, seven years into the field of sustainability. Uh, and then from there, working with companies and individuals to figure out why is it that when they encounter uh, disruption in their life, why is it that they typically suffer? Why can't they thrive in the face of disruption? So I've taken that as a life, as sort of a life uh, passion now because it ties so directly to my childhood, my upraising, and uh, the last three decades of my life. Right now, what is the biggest uh, the biggest struggle that you see that you're coaching clients on, and that he seems to be coming up time and time again? Yeah, it's. I think there are two. One is this mindset that disruption, change, volatility, whatever you want to call it, automatically equals bad. And so it's kind of like when you when you're at a traffic light and you see the green, and green means go, and then all of a sudden if somebody told you, no, green means stop and red means go, you'd be really confused. Uh, and so part one is this mindset uh, and a change in mindset that I'm working with with uh, the executives I coach right now. Uh, the second piece then, the second biggest challenge is in understanding how does one thrive when faced with volatility. And to do that, you need to first understand what volatility is and where it comes from. And so working through that notion of what is volatility? How do we wrap our hands around it? How can we predict what happens before it happens? And then how can we prepare ourselves, whether in our career or in our organizations, to thrive when X, Y, or Z that we forecast have to happen actually happens? That's the second big challenge that I'm working through right now with executives and uh, companies. You are the author of The Collaboration Economy. I'd love to just brag about this for a second. Um, it's uh, 
you're you're a big you believe that we need a new economic model if we're to secure our future. So, uh, in a nutshell, what does the collaboration economy promise? It promises that we can solve our world's most vexing challenges in ways that companies, individuals, governments, non non governmental organizations can all profit both financially and uh, uh, reputationally. So I'll give you a very quick, easy example uh, to see this. You are the mayor of the city of Los Angeles. You're completely bankrupt financially. Uh, You want to, but yet you still have responsibility for providing power to your your citizens. So without any money, how do you do that? uh, If you're the mayor, you now reach out both to the public sector, to the markets, as well as to individual companies like GE and Johnson Controls, as two examples of, of companies in the space, to create a way to shift from traditional um, streetlights to LED-type streetlights that would be greener and cleaner for the environment, but also drive cost savings that can be forecast, monetized, commoditized, and therefore therefore yield long-term cash to your investors, in this case, the GEs, the Johnson Controls, and other types of organizations. It's that sort of of outside-of-the-box thinking about problems that yields solutions to our most vexing challenges. Uh, from an individual standpoint, though, what can individuals do? I mean, a lot of my listeners wonder, um, you know, how they can um, be more collaborative in their their financial choices and be more uh, be more influential, have more of a social impact. Um, what would you say to that person who wants to kind of just get more involved and feel like part of a bigger a bigger fabric? You know, there are some really easy ways to do it, uh, whether it comes in the form of ride sharing, whether it comes in the form of sharing assets that you have that you don't use very well. I'll give you a great example of that. My wife and I and our family live just outside of Boston, a family neighborhood, 30, 40 kids running around here among a development of 60 houses. Uh, Yesterday, we had a block party and it blew me away to see how many people were talking about things like, oh, wasn't the winter really bad? Well, did you know that I've got a snowblower and you don't need to buy one? You can use my snowblower when I'm not using it. Or right. better yet, I'm delighted to just you know do it for you and have the kids do it. It's just simple things like that that don't cost money. And not only don't cost money, but literally save you money while saving the environment, while giving you access to the types of assets you need to live your daily life better. I, I, you're kind of a futurist in a way because I feel as though you're doing something, what you're teaching and educating and coaching people and executives on is is very unique. It's very, uh, it's very, as you said, sort of uh, like higher level thinking in a way. And you've been named a thought leader. What, what is next? Have you thought about that? I'm sure you do. Like, what's yes. the next thing? What's the next next thing? If it's not, if it's you know moving away from um, volatility, what's next? You know, next is where we start to work with a clean sheet of paper to say, what will industry look like? A clean sheet of paper to help us start to figure out not how do we fix government with the system we've got, but rather what would ideal government look like? And then work backwards to try to find ideal presidential candidates. We're coming up to the 2016 election as an example, informed with this vision of what a strong country could be. And try to find presidential candidates who, instead of uh, being interested in, and satisfied with ripping into one another, would be more interested in talking about vision and goals and goal setting and what it takes to actually solve problems collaboratively. We're, we're on the cusp of this historical inflection point where uh, 
the volatility that we've talked about, sort of we've touched on, uh, is colliding. So there are four drivers of volatility. There's geopolitical, uh, you know, just as, as we see it with uh, countries, countries uh, in, in conflict, uh, ideological, right? The, the conflict of free speech versus religion. Uh, we saw that with Charlie Hebdo, for example, in January. Technological disruption and ultimately ecological disruption. So there are those four drivers of volatility. volatility. And what's next is the outcome of what happens when two or more of those four drivers start to intersect to result in things like technology and ecology uh, linking up together to create the power wall that Elon Musk and Tesla introduced uh, Mm -hmm. last month to completely disrupt how the utility industry works. We're getting to a point where the assumptions we've made about our lives, about business, about government – that maybe we formed 10, 20 years ago are no longer valid. And those who can not only see that, but be able to challenge their assumptions now and reposition their portfolios with the answers that they come across will be the ones who can outperform not only their peers, but the market over the long term. What's your financial philosophy, Eric? A money mantra that guides your personal money making money decisions? Sure. So I split that into two. I split that into investing uh, and I'll put savings as part of investing. And then I put that into living. Uh, Let's go one at a time. On the investing side, I espouse the idea that I'm not smarter than the market or me can't beat we. That said, uh, so I tend to invest long. I tend to follow value. I tend to to follow uh, follow Buffett. But I have certain visions or views on certain industries that I think are at great risk for massive disruption. We've talked about the utility industry as just one example. And so there are certain certain sectors that I'm short, and there are certain uh, industries within certain sectors uh, and certain companies within certain industries within certain sectors that I'm also short. Um, so that's part one. And then on the living side, while we, we use credit cards and, and, you know, it's weird. I've gotten to this point where I'll use a credit card for like a $3 purchase and then feel really guilty about it because maybe <laughs> I fall into the guy disease of not carrying cash with me anymore. But literally, I have a certain, my wife and I have a certain budget that we set each month. And our goal is to come in 20% below that budget while not sacrificing any sort of uh, enjoyment of life. Because the one maybe bigger view that I've got is among the legacy that we can pass on to our two children and, and their children to come, not only is it financial, not only is it reputational, but it's financial. And it's financial both in the ability for us to say to our kids, Hey, go to whatever school you want. We're going to pay for it, and it's it's already prearranged. We we we've saved for that, but we're going to remove certain financial roadblocks that could stand in your way of being able to progress in a way that you can contribute to the greater world as a whole. And so we'll, we can provide some of the financing to help you in turn be able to have a, uh, an impact. So we think about investing and saving in the uh, we can't beat the market, but there are certain sectors that that I look at, and I'm very convinced that uh, it's better to be short than long in right now. And then on the living side, we live within our means plus twenty five percent. So how do you make that twenty five percent happen? Like, is are you communicating a lot? Do you have um, like? Can you give us some? Can you get, can you get even more granular with that? <laughs> sure. So, gosh, can you tell I'm really nerdy about this stuff? Like, I really want to know. <laughs> well, if I start if I start using p values, well, that's scary. No, me. don't do that. Are you you've lost me at p value. <laughs> I mean, probably all my listeners. Sorry, I apologize to everyone out. Not there. Not that we don't get it. We just it's you know this is like I try to make this a, a fun show. <laughs> Am 
might be a little too nerdy then. Yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll come up with granular a little bit. We so we last night um, last night Monday night we um, uh, planning a, for our summer vacation, and we have a budget we stick to an annual budget. And I said to my wife, uh, "This is the number that we can spend on the summer vacation." And we went out and we found the uh, we actually found this great I think it was like Ritz Carlton um, in Atlanta. Um, in late August. They might say Atlanta, August. Man, that doesn't sound like August is a great time to book hotels. Always like the cheapest. Yeah. And we actually found, this is really interesting. Maybe this is a small, a small help. Um, we found that the week before, because Labor Day is so late this year, we found that the week before the end of August is the perfect time to go on vacation, especially in the South, because kids are starting school ahead of Labor Day. They're coming back from, from camp. Uh, and, and they're starting school. Um, so this particular Ritz Carlton that we booked, um, we normally wouldn't go at, at, at that, you know, that type of a place, um, you know, for vacation because it's, you're talking about a week for two different rooms, four people, it's a lot of money, but we saved per night. I think it was like a hundred dollars per night. And then we called Amex platinum travel, uh, and they were able to pull a hundred dollar uh, resort credit plus a fourth night free and knock our per night down another seventy dollars. So we started off with a budget, and we said, "Great, the the guiding principle is to get twenty five percent below without sacrificing our enjoyment of life." So by choosing the right week, and then by using Amex Platinum, uh, um, we were able to knock off $1,000, so that was 10% right there. And then we have a U.S. Airways rewards card we use to book flights, and that comes with two companion tickets for $99. Uh, and so we booked our flights, which knocked off another 10%. So we're 20%. We'll figure out the other 5% somewhere. Uh, <laughs> you know, but even if we're 20% instead of 25 hey, it's a vacation. I can have that extra croissant. It's okay. Yeah, and you're at the Ritz, so you did pretty good. <laughs> I've, I've got no complaints. Um, well, thank you for that granular example. That was exactly what I was looking for. I took notes. Um, Eric, what would you say is a money memory of yours that's very, very vivid? You know, growing up, you said you grew up with a lot of doctors and psychologists and psych, you know, so in terms of money though, what was your, your perspective on money? How was that showcased to you at a young age? It's a great question, and it's, it's one I confess I've never really reflected on. So I'm going to tell you a story I've, I've never shared. Um, my dad, when I was five, brought home a bag of M&Ms, and I was so excited. And I asked him where M&Ms grow. And he said, well, M&Ms don't grow. You need money in order to buy M&Ms. And so I said, well, where do you get money from? And he said, and I don't know if he intended it this way, but he said, money is paper. It represents gold that the U.S. government has. And I, I sort of stopped thinking at paper. And I said, well, I remember somebody told me that paper comes from trees. So does that mean money grows on trees? <laughs> I woke up the next morning and my dad, God bless him, took probably four or five dollar bills, but enough to make it look like it was a tree full of, of dollars. And he literally hung dollar bills from the tree. So I pulled those four trees, $4 bills down from the tree or $5, whatever it was from the tree. And I had this expectation that the next morning I would see the same thing, but I didn't. And so I said, well, it must, money must grow on trees every other day, right? And then it didn't. And then that was my dad's way of teaching me that there's a difference between a, a small gift and the expectation that money just comes really easily. So that's always stuck with me. Wow. Yeah. Were you really an only hard. child? 
No, I'm actually uh, the second of two, but my brother is six years older. Mm. And so he was like in a totally different world. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, by the time I was, what, five and he was 11, he was doing all sorts of talent sports and, and a variety of other things. So it was as if I was an only child. Let's talk about failure. This is probably one of your favorite topics because you're all about volatility and dance with the volatility. And, you know, if you had to sort of go back down memory lane and think about, okay, that was a pretty financially volatile time. It was, it may have even been a failure, but I grew from it and I'm, I'm glad it happened. What would yeah. you say that Qual- was and, and what, what happened? Yep. So I'll give a really granular example. Qualcomm, 1998. <laughs> uh, so I bought Qualcomm stock in 96, and I think at the time it was uh, split adjusted, gosh, I don't know, 46 $47. I wrote it up to 92, and then your listeners may remember, uh, some of the old ones perhaps, might remember that there was a prudential uh, uh, analyst who right before the end of the trading market uh, 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 for the day before Christmas in 98, issued a report that said he saw Qualcomm as a $1,000 stock. At the time, it was trading at $420. I bought it at 46 So I wrote it up to 420 The day he came out with his $1,000 vision, it went up to 525 Now, I was going to start business school in 99 So I was looking at Qualcomm as a way to offset a significant chunk of my first year tuition. I, at this point, had a 10-bagger. I should have sold and walked away, but I got greedy. And I said, well, we're 525, we're, we're, we're 53% of the way to his $1,000 mark. If he's slightly off and at 750, there's still $250 to roam here. I should have sold. I should have sold long before that. But I rode Qualcomm from 525 all the way back down to 42. I went from a, tan, a 10 bagger all the way back to zero because I didn't see the volatility around us. I, I just assumed that that, uh, that Qualcomm was going to continue to go up, and this guy was right, where in hindsight, I wish that I had known about geopolitics, ideology, and techn- technology and ecology as sort of the four drivers of volatility, because then I would have noticed that, gee, companies without business models, number of dot-com in particular, are getting astronomical valuations. Maybe now is the time to take money off the table. Um, that's an idea that I think strongly underpins the concept of how do you benefit from volatility, which is you've got to challenge your assumptions and keep it very simple in the process. If I had done that, I probably would have been able to pay for my first year of uh, business school just on my own, and instead I had to take out a financial loan to do it. Oh, no. Yeah. and it, I mean, we all take out loans to do everything, buy cars, houses, um, you know, our credit card is essentially micro loans. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I suppose the way to look at it is I was really fortunate and lucky to get to that 525 from a base of 42 or 46 or whatever it was on Qualcomm stock. But the lesson here is now when you've got your gains, you've got to take money off the table and move on with life. Or as the profound Jim Cramer once told me, I worked for Jim Cramer at thestreet.com, yes. pigs get slaughtered. And I was definitely a pig. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely will confess full open commitment on that one. Yeah. Um, well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, that's that's that sucked, but uh, but you made it through business school despite you having to take out loans for it, and um, you're you're a wiser man for it. Oh goodness! Oh goodness! Yes, and I'm I'm grateful that I was single at the time, and I was at that point where while I wasn't making a ton of money. Uh, I was making enough that I could recover from that, and I only invest what I can afford to lose. 
So I knew that, okay, I'm playing with house money here, but gosh, that was a painful lesson to learn at the time. Invest only what you can afford to lose. That is a very good money mantra. And it's, it's again, it may be the first time that I've, I've actually come out and said that to another adult. That's, that's good. That's, a, yeah. See, we all have these, like, I feel that's why I want to do this show, because I think we all have great stories, great anecdotes, lots of lessons that we may not be, you know, giving them f- fun names or like alliterated, you know, um, themes or topic names or something like that. But this show can help people to really kind of articulate it once and for all and help others along the way. It's one of the reasons why I'm a fan of the show and I listen to it. Thank uh, you. I, I've turned my financial advisor onto it as well. Oh, awesome. Oh, I better, better really like button up here then. Um, how about a uh, so money moment? Mm. You probably had several, but give us one. All right. So let's see here. Um, I'm in Japan, college. Uh, yeah, I'll give this one. I'm going to give you two, actually. I'll give this one and one other one real quick. So I'm in college. It's my, it's my second year in Japan. And my, the dean of my school, uh, Japanese, walked up to me uh, about a week or so before school was officially to start. He asked me to give the keynote speech keynote speech welcoming uh, the students to this new school year. He asked me to do it in English. And I said, you know, 800 students, 750 of them are Japanese. I'm going to do a 40-minute talk in Japanese. Oh, no, you didn't. Whoa. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I stood up. I started in English. And I said, essentially, the equivalent of, ah, the heck with this. And I just went into 40 minutes of Japanese. And I was in the zone. I nailed it. It was so money. I was like, yes. That is so – okay. So what was – I mean, that's – I took like one year of Japanese in high yes. school. Yes. This is, this is, I mean, I, I can order some sushi, but that's because it's like written on the menu now. And I can <laughs> – I think I can count to 10. How did you learn this in such a short period of time? Is there a method to learning a language very quickly and um, so perfectly in front of an audience that's Japanese? My God. Well, uh, you know, that part was actually the easy part because the way I felt was, uh, again, I'm playing with house money. They know that I'm, I'm clearly not Japanese. Um, and so if I make a mistake or two, this is an incredibly forgiving audience, right? I'm speaking in their language, not my native tongue. So that took all the pressure off. Um, but in terms of being able to learn (laughs) Japanese to the point that I can get up there and do it, it was, it was equal parts work, passion, and a bit of, uh, of almost the gene pool lottery. Uh, let me say the gene pool lottery one first, which is I've got a photographic memory. Oh, you're one of those people. I am one of those grown worthy people. Oh, goodness, yes. And so you never wanted to sit next to me in calculus, math, or, or you know, physics tests. Anything. Anything. You didn't want to be next to me. It wasn't helpful. Um, so that was part one. It's just massive recall. But part two was I was so into Japanese in large part because I'm, I'm into martial arts and I'm into a particular esoteric type of martial art um, or one specific study of martial arts. It's just so esoteric. That when I started to study Japanese language, it actually made me a better, better martial artist at this particular discipline um, because so much of the teachings were uh, more accessible to you if you understood Japanese and then could translate into English what they meant. The second one, really quick, totally so money, very easy. 95, I was in 1995, I was working for a very large, very well known, which I can't say the name of because the CEO, the former CEO will hunt me down and kill me. Very well known financial services firm. And the CEO did not want to buy the URL for his company. I said to him, you've got to buy this thing. 
I said, if you're not going to buy this thing, I will. And then you're going to want to buy this thing for me for hundreds and <laughs> hundreds of times more than what I bought it for. Um, and so he eventually did buy it. Two years later, he sent me a handwritten thank you note, uh, as well as at the time I was working for a large consulting firm. And at the time, uh, after he sent me the thank you note, he said, oh, by the way, just so you know, we're looking for a company to help us build our internet strategy, would you guys be interested in bidding? Which was sort of the hint hint way of saying, come in with a nice, uh, come in with a nice proposal and you've got a multi-million dollar project. Wow. So money. Yeah. So money. Yeah. You give something, you give some good advice for free. They follow the advice. They realize your value and. And you walk away and, and you're, you <laughs> You got a seven figure deal. Yeah. You got a seven figure deal and you said, man, I nailed that. I thought the rest of that story was going to be like, and the company's name was Airbnb or something like, you know, just <laughs> really, really that we would all rec- know and recognize. But uh, I, if I told you the name, it would be instant. I just have to say the two, like two letters for the first and, and, and second name of the company. And you guys, you'd be like, yep, I know it. Wow. I just, like like that type of household name, but I, I so clearly remember the, the conversation with the CEO. He said, "My clients are white glove. They will have no interest in this interconnected network thing. They call their broker or their advisor, and their advisor tells them they read from the from the ticker exactly how much money they have in different positions. They're not going to want access to information. Mm. I mean, think about that now, right? You asked me about the iPod and, and why it's not next to the Walkman in, in the Smithsonian. But think about having to pick up the phone, a corded telephone at that, to hear quotes about your holdings, right? And just yeah. how crazy that was. But that was what it was like in the mid-90s. Mid-90s. Feels Mid-90s. Like it was, feels like it was like like Don, like Downton Abbey era or something. Um, <laughs> were we still wearing dinner coats back then? I don't remember. I don't know, but I wish I had a Carlson. <laughs> that would have been very What is your number one money habit, Eric? I'm sure you have a lot of good habits. You just strike me as somebody who's very diligent about I mean, being conscious about certain behaviors. And so when it comes to your money, what would you say is your number one financial habit? You know, habit's such a great word because it conjures this image of Stephen Covey. And I I follow the seven habits very closely. And my financial habit is always starting with the end in mind. Uh, And so I've got certain goals. My wife and I have certain goals when it comes to things like retirement age, when it comes to things that we want to enjoy. Um, uh, I'll confess that we recently leased a Tesla. And it was like the big splurge moment. But we had been saving for years to do it. You can lease a Tesla? I thought you could only purchase. No, you can lease one now. And not only can you lease one, but the rates are relatively reasonable. And when you start to factor in the cost savings, here, here, okay, here's another one of those financial mantra for a second. Yeah. Uh, That ties ties back to green and sustainability. Uh, It turns out that over the course of 12 months, I would spend, for an equivalent size sedan, I would spend about $3,600, give or take, for gas. We are right now uh, about, or going to be about $2,500 for the year for charging the car. Mm. So I'm saving about $1,100 a year, which is a little over a month of the lease, just by doing the same thing I would do anyway, except I don't have to stand in the rain to, to <laughs> fuel my car. And your car is um, way cooler. Yeah, I confess that the Model S is pretty damn cool, but uh, it's one of those things that wouldn't have been accessible if we hadn't started with the end in mind years ago, where we said, all right, I'm going to reach certain, a certain milestone where I can do this, and we can financially afford to do it uh, while realizing that you know, if we splurge on this, it, does, it means that there aren't going to be 10 Canali suits that I can buy as well, or, or 10 splurges, whatever those splurges are. Canali is expensive, man. Man, I bought a tie you. for my husband from Canali and a shirt, and it was like 
I felt like I was buying myself a pair of shoes. I went to Bloomies to buy a suit for the Clinton Global Initiative, uh, which I went to last September. Uh, I thought, well, I'd wear a nice suit to, to meet President Clinton. Uh, and, and folks, you can actually see this, this picture. So you can see the suit. And now you'll know the backstory. But it was a Canali suit from Bloomies. And they actually had this deal going where if you bought a Canali suit, they would give you a, uh, the mortgage that you need to actually pay for it. Uh, <laughs> really interesting cross-promotion. My God, it's, you know, it's it, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm going to find that picture. <laughs> I will put it up on my website. I'll send it over to you. So you yeah, can maybe this. we can put that up on the So Many Podcast website as your profile picture. Um, <laughs> I should send that to you, and I will do it after. I'll do this. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You've had a lot of fun, Eric. Let's do some So Money fill in the blanks, shall we? Yeah, cool. Let's do it. If I won the lottery tomorrow, let's say you won $100 million, the first thing I would do is? Plan. If, if you fail the plan, you plan to fail. What would you plan? I'd plan how we would use it. And the first thing, when I say how we would use it, maybe a better way of doing it is how we would invest it. And invest it not just financially, but equally important, invest it in, in causes that are meaningful to us. Um, and then the second thing we would do is we would live the way we normally live. We would be incredibly frugal. A book that made a lot of sense to me that was written again in the 90s was The Millionaire Next Door. I talked about how the majority of millionaires in America are folks who saved their way to millionaire status, not won the lottery. Um, and they did so by never changing their lifestyle, even when they reached a certain financial plateau. Uh, and I don't want my kids, I wouldn't want my kids to feel like, okay, we've got all this money, we can do whatever the heck we want. I, I'd rather shield them from all that and live our life and do so in a way that the greater good can benefit. Yes, yes. It's like Warren Buffett says, you know, um, he's, you don't want to, I'm going to botch this, but essentially the, the, the idea is you want to leave your kids enough money where they feel so they can like, you know, have a, a decent life, but that they don't have so much money that they don't feel like they have to really work for anything. And I think that's absolutely right. We, we as parents, we want to uh, be able to shield our kids from pain and from certain, uh, you know, certain painful moments or painful experiences. But if, if we do so continuously, we reduce our kids' ability to deal with volatility. The one thing that I spend on that makes my life easier or better is? Dry cleaning. The <laughs> um. <laughs> well, Canali suits need some special TLC. All right. Can I tell you, though? So I, I also, the same day I bought the Canali suits. No, it was a different day. bought the Canali suits. I saved up another three months, and I bought two Robert Graham shirts for Ted. So I went out to Ted in March. Um and so I had these two great shirts, and, and for listeners who may not be familiar with Robert Graham shirts, what makes them cool is that um, he takes what you would assume are simple things like uh, uh, sleeves, and you would think that both sides of the sleeve are the same color because that's how we were, were taught you know, dress shirts work. And he actually makes really cool, intricate, colorful patterns on the inside of your oh, sleeves. Oh, yeah, I've seen those. Very cool shirts. Unfortunately, a little bit more money than I want to spend, but I thought it was Ted and I had to make a certain type yeah. of shirt. There so, are knockoffs to this I've seen, right? There are, and I wish I had known that at the time because you know, knockoff, really funny. We were at Turks and Caicos at some overpriced resort um, in March, and I saw knockoffs that were like half the price at an overpriced resort. So it told me I probably paid four times more than I should have. <laughs> My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on is? Madden Mobile Football on my on my iPhone, um, which is probably not something that you hear. <laughs> at least it's not Candy Crush. Oh, no, it's not Candy Crush. I went through that phase, but I never spent money on Candy Crush. Um, but Madden mobile football, and it's because my eight-year-old son loves football and he can literally sit for hours, watch games on DVR 
And he's at the point where he can dissect teams' defenses, where he can say, all right, uh, this team's going to do a blitz, or this team's going to do a, a, you know, a cover two. And I'll look at him and I'll say, hey, you know what would be really cool is if you learn how to read and not just like be able to, to dissect defenses. Um, and so I had to start playing football on my phone so that I could understand what my son was talking about. Oh, man. Okay, let's move on here to one thing. This is, I like this question. One thing I wish I'd known about money growing up is? That it is incredibly easy to lose and incredibly difficult to earn. Is it that hard to earn? It can be. Mm-hmm. You know, there is, a, there is a guest from CNBC, a guy named John – what is his name? John Layfield, John Bradshaw Layfield, a wrestler, I think it was, of all things. Yes. He once said something like, to be born poor is bad, to stay poor is stupid. And, and I thought about that for a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, hmm. I don't know if I 100% believe that because if I believe that with 100%, then it would imply that you can always beat the market. And I've said, I'm on record now as saying, I don't think you can beat the market continuously at scale uh, you know, over over a course of, of 20, 30 years. I don't think you can do it. And there are plenty of people who clearly do do it. I don't think it's possible at scale for all of us to do it because we were all able to do it. And by nature, you wouldn't be able to beat the market because you'd have to be able to beat millions of other people who can do it. Well, same. that's exactly – I was just talking to one of my guests, um, Ryan um, – Ryan Holiday, who is a brilliant young guy. He was the former director of marketing at American Apparel. He's a best-selling author. He's a media strategist. And we were talking about earning. And I said, Ryan, you know, why do you think that it's this is something – we talk so much about how to save, but we don't really emphasize earning uh, as much. And he said, well, you know, everyone can save. And that's something that we're all able to do. But with earning, there is an inherent meritocracy there, you know, in that that you have to sort of be good at something or prove or, or, you know, there's a certain maybe a level of education, experience, skill, all that to be able to earn, um, which I agree to an extent. And so he said that's why it kind of isn't very politically correct as it is to really talk about that and say yeah. everybody can earn more. Well, can they, you know? Um and I don't I, know. It's, it's an interesting debate. It is an interesting debate. And, and if you stop for a second and ask yourself, well, who are the, the top two billionaires who are sort of self-made in the tech field over the last, say, three or four decades? Just, you know, off the top of your mind, you'd probably say maybe Zuckerberg and maybe Bill Gates. Yeah. Right? Um, and, and you look and say, well, all right, did both of them graduate with MBAs from Harvard? No. Did either of them graduate with their bachelors from Harvard? Right? And both went to Harvard. Um, so is there not an, an inherent lesson there, which says there's almost this, um, inverse relationship between the level of education you finish and your ability to earn millions, if not billions. Yeah. No, it's it, very, very inspiring. It, it is at the very least. And I think that that is, I think the word is inspiring. All right. We are almost wrapped here. I want to know when I donate money, I like to give to blank because... Well, when I donate money, I love to give to educational causes because it's the younger generation that ultimately is going to determine the direction not only of our country, but the ability to solve our most vexing challenges for our world. And I'm so money because? <laughs> um, because I get to be on your show. Oh. Um, no, it's, I, I think it's in part humility. And, and I don't know if this has come across or not, but I truly believe that I am not only no greater than anybody else, but at best I'm normal. Um, and 
I think that 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 true belief in self-deprecation and in keeping sort of my ego in check and, and that I'm not better than anybody else. And in fact, I might be sort of average or below average in some regards uh, helps me push harder, which in turn makes me practice, 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 which leads me to so many success. Yes, talking to you just in this last 40 minutes has been um, so much fun, you know, like it's just been fun. I want to like go and have a beer with you. And I think people, you should listen to this episode again with a beer because I think it'll be all that much more enjoyable. And maybe I'll just start doing that during the podcast. Maybe I should start drinking during the show. I know some podcast hosts who do that. Mm, I don't know. I don't know. I think that's going too far. I think listeners can probably find the two or three podcasts I've appeared on where the hosts actually have done just that. And, and the questions of questions went really intellectually challenging and, and just in English really like, Hey, I want, I want to know what that guy thinks about that too. Did that host really just ask? That? <laughs> oh my God. You know, how many yeah. pints did you just go through? Oh my gosh. Pints, plural. Pints, yes. Oh my gosh. I, I sound British all of a sudden. Um, Eric Lowitt, thank you so much. This has been a, a real joy for us and we hope to have you back again. Hey, Farnoosh, this is such a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. That's a wrap, everyone. If you'd like to learn more about Eric, please visit his personal website, ericlowitt.com. His company's website is nexusglobaladvisors.com. He's also on Twitter, at Eric Lowitt. All of this information, of course, at somoneypodcast.com. And there you can get the transcript for this interview and comments, as well as all of the transcript and comments from previous episodes. And I want to hear from you. Just submit your question about money, work, or life, maybe guests, at somoneypodcast.com. Click on Ask Farnoosh. And there's a really, really, really good chance that I will answer it this weekend. And if I don't get to it this weekend, it will come up in the following weekend during our Ask Farnoosh episodes. And as a reminder, if you'd like to win a free, free 15-minute money session with me, hop on over to iTunes and leave a review for this show. Every Saturday, I select one new reviewer to get a free 15-minute money blitz with me. And so if you'd like uh, to win that opportunity, go to iTunes, leave a review, and hopefully we'll connect. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I hope to see you back here tomorrow. In the meantime, I hope your day is so funny.